Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Jonathan Ames on the first novel in the new series, A Man Named Doll. Jonathan Ames is the author of 10 books, including Wake Up Sir, The Extra Man and You Were Never Really Here, all published by Pushkin Press. He also created the hit HBO comedy Bored to Death, starring Ted Danson, Zach Galifianakis and Jason Schwartzman, as well as Blunt Talk, starring Patrick Stewart. His thriller You Were Never Really Here was adopted for a major Hollywood film by Lynn Ramsey, starring Joaquin Phoenix. And Jonathan currently lives in Los Angeles with his dog, as does the protagonist, the titular protagonist of Jonathan's new novel, A Man Named Doll, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Jonathan, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me again. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe this novel. My goal lately, or the last few years with my writing, starting with You Were Never Really Here, is to write a page turner, to create the sensation for the reader that they've got to turn the page, that they feel compelled. So I guess my hope on one sense is that it's a page turner. Another way to describe it is that it's just as there's like sort of classic kinds of poetry. Oh gosh, I'm feeling very, you know, the sonnet, the the Sestina, I can't think of the proper terms. There's a form in fiction known as the private detective novel. So this is a private detective novel, specifically a Los Angeles private detective novel, which is almost like kabuki at this point, because it's been such an imitated and beloved form. And I wanted to take a shot at it myself. So it's a private detective novel, it's a thriller, pulp fiction, it's uh, noir. I guess those are the various words I would use myself to describe it, or my hopeful words. I hope that it's a page turner. I hope it's a half-decent private detective novel. So those were the goals. Let's talk about Happy Doll, Hank Doll, Hap Doll, the protagonist. Tell us something about who he is. Yeah, well, uh, in the book, he generally goes by the name Hank Doll because his parents, you know, handed him an unfortunate name, which was Happy Doll. The father's last name was Doll, and they named him Happy, not thinking, as he says in the book, that it might turn out to be a bit of a joke. So he often goes by Hank. So Happy Hank Doll uh, is a troubled man 
age 50. Unfortunately, his mother died in childbirth. He was raised by his father who was in the Navy and he, he had a tough childhood. Out of childhood, he went into the Navy. He was a policeman on naval boats. That was his job in the Navy. And then he came out of the Navy, joined the LAPD, was quite traumatized by his 10 years working in the juvenile division. And so then when we pick him up for the last 15 years, he's been a private detective hanging his own shield. He lives alone. He has a dog. Um, because of yeah, his traumas, he was able to get free psychoanalysis through uh, an institute that you know, gives free therapy to ex-cops. So anyway, I may have covered some of your later questions. So that's a, a thumbnail sketch of the character. Well, I was going to say the thing about the name because it's quite a common thing for, you know, parents to give their, give their children a slightly silly, slightly jokey name that sort of like backfires a bit later on. But what's amazing here, what's ironic here is, as you said, he's literally killed his mother when he was born and he's called Happy. Yeah, and most of his life, he's far from a happy doll, you know, but he's he's got a resilient attitude, though. And he, you know, so he does have strength. And he's self-medicating as well, we, we have to talk about. And in therapy, and literally in therapy four times a week, which is some, some heavy therapy. Yeah, well, he's in old-fashioned Freudian analysis, lying on the couch, not looking at the analyst, and trying to come to know himself. And he has been making progress, getting perhaps more at peace with himself, but then the events of the book take place, and uh, things, you know, <laughs> hit a downward spiral. Well, so the protagonist of You Were Never Really Here was also a a man who was basically suffering from an extremely dysfunctional youth childhood. Some similarities with Dole, some that are not similarities. And, you know, they're both short books about a man that embarks on a quest where there is violence and where there is retribution. And that's really where the similarities end, though, in terms of the start. Because as you said, obviously Dole has, you know, a lot of the aspects one would expect to find in the sort of private dick novel. Mm -hmm. Um, But tell us what, you know, some of the other differences are between these two novels, which might, on first glance, look similar. Yeah, well, first of all, and you might not be aware of this because they probably sent you the galleys and not the finished book, but I've conceived... Happy Doll as as a series, as a beginning of novels centered around this protagonist. So at the end of the finished book is the first chapter of the next book. And um, oh, I should have alerted them to send that to you. No, I do have that. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to talk about that later, but I do have the finished copy. Oh, great. So I've read read the first part of the the Wheel of Doll. Yeah. So one big difference is because originally I thought I was going to continue with the Joe character from You Were Never Really Here. I wanted to find a vehicle, you know, a recurring character that I wrote about, like Raymond Chandler with Philip Marlowe, or on a more popular front, Lee Child with Jack Reacher, you know, Ross McDonald with Lou Archer. I wanted to find my hero that I could return to. So anyway, Dahl, I think, has become that hero, though I might eventually write a sequel to You Were Never Really Here. But I think the biggest difference and part of the reason why maybe I 
ended up pursuing Dahl more than the Joe character from You're Never Really Here is that, well, a big difference between the two books is that Dahl is written in the first person. So you're really getting the full impact of Dahl's personality. He's talking to you, the reader. Whereas You Were Never Really Here was written in the third person and somewhat, you know, so we're at some remove from Joe, though we come to know him. But by writing in the first person, a lot of personality, as it were, I think emerges. And so Joe, I mean, um, Happy has a, a wider range of feelings and he's, um, bit more functional in terms of his place in society. Joe was the ultimate outsider, the loner, so afraid of damaging others that that's partly why he wanted to be completely alone. He he was slightly mad, the Joe character from You Were Never Really Here. I had some line about him where he, the narrator says, on some level, I'm, I'm going to botch my own line, but the narrator says, on some level, Joe knew that he wasn't quite sane and so he was both prisoner and jailer to himself or something like that. And whereas Happy, though troubled and wounded and perhaps an overused word in today's society, damaged, he's sane, relatively speaking. And so I, I think he's um, just much more accessible and approachable character than Joe might have been. When one thinks back to the original archetypes of the private detectives, you know, Philip Marlowe's, they're always seen as these sort of white knight figures and then sort of later depictions, our private detectives are, are more likely to be found staking out hotels and taking photographs of extramarital affairs and stuff. And and when we first meet Doll, he's he's a bit down on his luck. Let's talk about the work that he's been doing when we first meet him in the book. Yeah, well, his Private detective work has dried up a bit. For a long time, he was uh, sustained by uh, actually helping senior citizens who were uh, the victims of scams. Oftentimes, you know, seniors are taken in by swindlers. And so uh, Happy was working with a, a gerontologist who would send him clients. But then that dried up. I won't go into every detail. I, don't, I realize I'm perhaps giving away a lot of things from the book, but so to supplement his income, he starts working as a security guard at at a, a spa, what might be called here in the U.S. like a, a Thai spa, and one of these places that offer massages to both sexes, but often can be, as unfortunately as we saw here in the U.S., places of danger, and which, you know, I wrote the book before, there was this tragedy here in the U.S. that occurred at at such a, a spa. So anyway, he works security at one of these spas to, uh, especially at night, to keep an eye on the young ladies uh, and to protect them from unruly customers. I want to talk about the area in which the book is set. It's it's contemporary novel, and Hank lives in a a house on. What turns out, I found it on, on Google Street Maps, Glen Elder Street, mm-hmm. um, in sight of the, the Hollywood sign. And, mm-hmm. and he's, he's come by this house through an inheritance. It does seem like it must be a, an area that's perhaps a bit beyond his means. But tell me what this area is actually like. Yeah, well, it's the area I happen to live. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you write what you <laughs> see out your window. But 
one of the charms of the area, for me anyway, is that this, the very much the stomping grounds of Philip Marlowe, the various apartments that he lived in are all in this section. This is um, Hollywood, maybe it might be considered East Hollywood, but it's literally the Hollywood Hills. And this is where Marlowe had his office, where he lived. Uh, the hotels that he often visits and the short stories are along this corridor here called Franklin. And there are these beautiful old buildings, but then at some point, probably in the 50s, a huge freeway was put right in the heart of Hollywood. And so, but this, this was Marlowe's old stomping grounds. That for me is a big charm. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jonathan Ames and we're talking about his new novel, A Man Named Doll. And I want to talk about, yeah, we, obviously, Jonathan, we can't give away much of the plot of the book. And there's some really 
good meaty subject matter in this book that I'm frustrated that we we can't talk about. But you know that would be to give away where it goes and what actually happens. But I do want to talk about some of the characters that you've created, some of which I presume are going to become you know recurring characters throughout the series. And so I guess the first one would be Monica, who is who is Dole's erstwhile love interest stroke friend. Tell us something about her. Yeah, well, she works at the bar where he's a a regular. Um, and so he's kind of one of her bar flies. And, and she seems to, she's in her late 30s, but most of her bar flies are older men. She's one of those gals that, seems to have a great touch with the the older hard drinkers. And so they all kind of come to that bar to see her in a way. And maybe each one of them feels like maybe she loves him a little, uh, even though nothing happens. Though Monica and, and Happy, Happy being a little bit on the younger side for the pensioners that are drawn to her, did have, has a history with her. So she's a one of those... I don't know, it sounds like a cliche, a bartender with a heart of gold. And she has her own deep troubles, though. She was horribly scarred by her father, which perhaps might explain a little bit her caring for these these older men, because maybe she could, could never care for her father after what he did to her. So I don't know, again, I don't know what, if I'm giving away too much, but yeah, so Monica Happy has a lot of love for Monica and profound respect. And then again, without giving too much away, I wanted to talk a little bit about Lou Shelton, who is um, Hap's former partner and who kicks off the plot, (laughs) where the plot goes. Um, So interestingly, the, the book, if one reads the blurb of this book, it talks about an incident that happens that actually is not, the main plot of this book as it turns out and may well obviously be if one reads the extract from the second book see that it's obviously feeding on into that second book as well but the main thrust of this story is based around his former partner Lou Shelton so tell us something about him yeah well uh Lou yeah and it was a little bit I guess of a, a misdirection at the start of the book though certainly what happens informs so much of what goes on because it really Mm. put happy in rough shape. He also encounters certain policemen, but it's, um, yeah, in many ways it's, uh, yeah, it's, and I I noticed with the flap copy, they really, and I tried to, at a certain point, get them to de-emphasize that a bit, you know, but at the same time, you don't want to give away all the crazy things that are are going to happen in the book. So, you know, this whole business of flap copy and what's written. I I generally, for me as a reader, I try never to read too much what's written on outside on the edges of a book or, uh, you know, because it's like, I don't want, they give stuff away. I, I So I kind of avoid that stuff personally. But yeah, Lou and Happy, they were uh, on the LAPD force together. Lou was just about on the verge of retirement when Happy was a rookie. And Lou was a bit of a mentor, took Happy under his wing, and one time just about sacrificed himself for Happy during a, uh, during a riot. And so they, they have a, a long history. And, and unfortunately, Lou uh, has a very strong addiction to cigarettes. 
you know, we always hear about alcoholics and junkies, and but a cigarette addiction can be as deadly. Maybe it's a takes longer, but so Lou is uh, has a very severe addiction to cigarettes. Anyway, that's a little bit of a thumbnail sketch on Lou. And then I wanted to talk about just one more character that I, that I hope appears in another book, and that's a uh, the the pawnbroker friend Rafi Mendez with an S, who's a brilliant character. I thought. Yeah, I'm hoping to bring him back in the next book. And now that you've said that, I'm like, oh, I really have to. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm about. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping to finish the book this summer, but Rafi is going to be in there. And um, yeah, so he's got a number of friends that he's helped over the years as a detective or as a cop, and they sort of form his, I guess, social circle, as it were. So all of these characters, they all, this is a contemporary novel, as I said. So all of these characters seem like, you know, fully formed real people. And at the same time, all fall really well into the the sort of stock characters that one would expect to see in a detective fiction. And so I want to talk about your creation of these characters. Where do they come from? Well, I guess where... Well, they come from my mind, I guess, um, out, out of nothing into something. I mean, like most fiction, I guess. But um, sometimes it might begin with a a real person or just one trait of a real person. And then you create a fictional character. In the case of Rafi, I was going to say, I've never known anyone like him, but then I suddenly just now, as you said that, when I was in Rome in 1984, as a young man, and maybe even a pretty young man, I was brought to an antique dealer. <laughs> like I was running around with this kind of older crowd in Rome. This was like Christmas time, 1984. I was a au pair in Paris and I'd taken a year off from college. I was a, a garçon au pair in Paris during my year off, strange circumstances. And, but I had this wonderful French family, but they went away for their Christmas holiday. And so I went to Venice for a few days on my own with very little money. I found a room that actually had no heating. And then I ended up down in Rome where through some contacts in New York, I got to run around with this kind of chic fashionista crowd in Rome for a few nights. And I remember these men brought me to this antique dealer like I was some sort of gift for him to observe or I don't know what. So now that I think of it, and he was kind of like, um, maybe that was the basis for the Rafi character a little bit. I'm being somewhat oblique, but but mostly these characters just come out of my mind. I mean, the, there's a realtor character who's somewhat based on a realtor I know here. But yeah, a lot of times it's like this Frankensteining from one's own memory of other human beings. Like, oh, that person had long jowls maybe i'll give long jowls to this character and and so you just sort of make a collage i mean I, graham green had some sort of quote where he said something about when you create a character maybe you begin with reality but you can't possibly know everything about another human being what toothpaste they use or what time do they go to bed at night or something like that and so once you don't know one thing, it really starts becoming this piece of fiction. So I, I, I might begin with one 
physical ingredient or a personality ingredient. And then I, from there, like um, something you put in a pot and then it rises like a cake. I don't know. My metaphors are all messy, but um, so yeah, it might begin with a germ of a person. And isn't the word germ somehow related to seed and mm, germinal? So anyway. So just, just one more question from me and then I'll get you to, to read a bit of the book, if you would. Um, I just wanted to talk, finish off talking about Dole's relationship with George, his dog, because it's, mm. it's really beautiful. Yeah, well, I uh, four years ago, I got maybe the first dog of my adulthood. I'd had two dogs growing up and, I, well, the second dog passed when I was in my early 30s and I just was so devastated that I felt like I could never get a dog again. I couldn't go through that pain. But then I, four years ago, uh, some friends of mine texted me, oh, there's a dog that needs fostering for a week before, you know, there's a whole process here and I don't know how it is in England, but you know, with rescuing dogs and fostering them and then finding someone to adopt them. So they sent me this picture. Could you foster this dog for a week? I don't know. My friend had this inspiration. Well, she knew how much I love dogs. And so I said, okay, I can do it. I can step out of my selfishness and take care of a dog for a week. And I got this dog who came to me with the name Fezzik, named after Andre the Giant in Mm. uh, Princess Bride. Sweet little dog. And... I just immediately fell for him. And so within probably the first eight hours I had him, I thought, oh, I want to adopt him. And sure enough, I was able to. And um, I guess I was deemed a fit a fit custodian uh, or a fit friend. And so anyway, I just adore my dog, as so many of us do who have pets. And, and I've also loved cats. I've had some cats in my life. And so, I don't know, as I began to write Dahl, you know, he, he has a dog a lot like my dog. And so I guess I was, that might be some of the more autobiographical sections are happy Hank's feelings for his dog. Can I get you to finish off with a reading then? Okay. So I'll read from the very start of the book, which is dedicated to a dear friend of mine who passed, unfortunately, from COVID, um, Ray Pitt. And um, yeah, so I'll start at the very start of the novel, read the first two pages, and then I'll jump ahead and read a brief section about George the dog. Shelton had always been a hard man to kill, but this time he looked nervous. He came to my shabby little office on a Tuesday in early March, 2019. It had been a few weeks since I'd seen him last and he didn't look good, but that wasn't unusual. He never looked good. He was covered in liver spots like a paisley tie and was built like a bowling pin, round in the middle and meager up top. His head was small. He was in the customer's chair and I was behind my desk. He was 73, bald and short and getting shorter all the time. I was 50, Irish and nuts and getting nuttier all the time. Outside there was a downpour. LA was crying and had been for weeks. The window behind my desk was being pelted. The noise was like a symphony gone mad. It was rainy season, an old-fashioned one, an anomaly. Hadn't rained this long in years, and L.A. had turned Irish green. 
The brown scorched hills were soft with new grass, like chest hair on a burn victim. You could almost think that everything was going to be all right with the world. Almost. I'm in a bad way, Hank, Shelton said. That's why I came to see you in person, even in this weather. His tan raincoat was wet and splotched and looked like the greasy wax paper they use for deli meat. He fished his palm malls out of his right pocket and set one on fire. He knew I didn't mind, and it didn't matter anyway. Even when he wasn't smoking, he smelled like he was. His open mouth was like an idling car. Why are you in a bad way, Lou? What's going on? I pushed my ashtray littered with the ends of joints closer to his side of the desk. You know I lost the kidney, right? He said. Yeah, of course, I said. I visited you, remember? I took a joint out of my desk drawer, struck a match, and lit up, but I knew I wouldn't get high. I've smoked too much over the years, and I'm saturated with THC. So at this point, it's just a placebo, a placebo that takes the edge off, makes the nightmare something you don't have to wake up from. You know it's all a dream, even if it's a bad dream. I know, I know, Lou said. I'm just saying, you know, I lost one, and now, well, the good kidney, which wasn't that good, is going. And I'm looking at dialysis. And dialysis is a living death. He sucked on his cigarette. Lou Shelton had been smoking two packs a day since he was 15. He'd had open heart surgery three times and had more stents than fingers. He'd survived mouth cancer and throat cancer and tongue cancer. And his voice was a toss up between a rasp, a wheeze and a death rattle. I'd seen him once with his shirt off and he had a fat scar like an ugly red snake down the middle of his chest. It was a zipper that kept getting opened. And from being in hospital so much, he had a more or less permanent case of MRSA, which made him prone to boils on his ass that had to be lanced. And he sucked on the Paul Mall. Like I said, he was a hard man to kill. All right, and now I'll read this little bit about George. In the meantime, George needed to walk and I grabbed his leash and he started jumping even higher than he had in greeting. He's half chihuahua, half terrier of some kind, and quite springy. I've had him two years. He's a rescue. Someone left him chained to a fence. And he's three or four years old, according to the vet. Unfortunately, I know nothing of his life before me, which I have to accept. George, sit, I said. Sit. Come on, sit. Finally, he calmed down enough for me to loop the leash around his neck, and we went out the door. He was pulling hard down the stairs, but I didn't care. He'd been cooped up all day and I wanted him to feel free. Then we hit the street and I admired, as I often do, his small muscular torso and how sleek and handsome he is. His legs are thin and elegant, as are his long-fingered paws, and his coloring, a tan head and body and a white neck, makes him look like he's wearing a khaki suit and a white shirt, which is a good look for a gentleman like George in the semi-arid climb of Los Angeles. Trim and fit, he weighs about 22 pounds and has large mascara-rimmed eyes that break your heart and make you fall in love simultaneously. Unlike most dog owners, I don't project onto him that he's my child, my son. Rather, it's a more disturbed relationship than that. I think of him as my dear friend whom I happen to live with. And that way, we're like two old-fashioned closeted bachelors who cohabitate and don't think the rest of the world knows we're lovers. He does have his own bed, which I banish him to every now and then, but that's very rare. And so we sleep together most every night of the year. He starts off with his head resting on the pillow next to me, 
giving me moony eyes as I read. I always read before going to bed. And then when I'm tired, I put my book down and bury my face in his neck and inhale his earthy dog smell, which I love. And then I kiss his neck like he's my wife before I turn off the light. And then he tries to put his tongue in my mouth, which I don't allow, but I let him lick the corner of my eye to get some salty crust or something else tasty. It's a whole ritual we have. And then when the lights go out, he burrows under the sheets and puts his warm body next to mine. And I'm ready to sing like Fred Astaire, heaven, I'm in heaven. So I've been talking to Jonathan Ames. We've been talking about his latest novel, A Man Named Doll, which is going to be the first in a series out from Pushkin Vertigo in the UK. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Oh, well, thank you for having me on again. And I really enjoy your podcast. And just thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.